Welcome to the next episode in this, our new series, Think Agility, the podcast series from Agilisys. Uh, you might know us from our work around the UK in developing road safety strategies, research and data platforms. Hopefully, this isn't the first of our podcasts that you've dipped into, but let me just explain how we arrived here. Over the last few years, we've been running a wide variety of workshops, conferences, and dozens of webinars. And occasionally people have said to us, have you thought about creating a podcast? So here we are. Think Agility aims to bring together intelligence, insight, and innovation relating to the highway sector. Now, inevitably, there will be a focus on safety, but we want it to connect to related themes such as sustainable and active mobility, traffic technology, air quality, and public health. So we're trying to bring together thought leadership along with the latest research and hoping to blend those into some vibrant discussion, all with the hope of helping colleagues to get across issues, to think more deeply and to help us move forward as a sector. In this episode, uh, in our first series, we are doing something a little bit different. Rather than talk about a particular piece of research or the latest white paper, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by someone who has provided a great deal of leadership around transport issues over many years. David Davis has just retired as Exec Director of PACTS. We thought it'd be a great opportunity to get his reflections on a life in transport safety. So hopefully you'll hear plenty in this episode that sparks your interest and causes you to want to dig a little deeper. If there are any links, uh, we will put those into the show notes. Um, and hopefully by now you will have listened to one or two of our previous episodes and appreciate what we're trying to do. And if so, please do give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. And to make sure that you get notified of future episodes, please do also subscribe. So, David, thank you very much for joining us on Think Agility. Um, I know that certainly my experience of working with you is the, sort of the last 10 years, but your history in the sector goes back beyond that. Could you just remind us a little bit about, you know, your the arc of your career and maybe pick out some of the different roles that you've done over the years and the, that you've played in transport, both locally and nationally? Dan, hello, and thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this. Um, and yes, I'm retiring because I've been in the game a while. Not always road safety by any means, but most of it has been related to road safety in one way or another. Uh, I, I got into it through really quite a sort of roundabout route. Um, I started out my proper working career as an accountant with Shell up in Aberdeen. And after a couple of years, I decided that wasn't really me. And I saw this advert for PhD with a difference at Aston University, planning for cycling in the West Midlands, which had been put together by Aston University and Birmingham Friends of the Earth and Pushbikes, the campaign group there, with some funding from the one of the Cadbury Trusts. And so I spent three years, or nearly four years actually, uh, doing a PhD on planning for cycling in the West Midlands. And of course, you can't plan for cycling without getting involved with um, road safety issues and being very cognizant of those. Little did I know that uh, at the same time I was there, 82 when I moved there, um, PAX had just been set up or was in, was in the process of being set up. Um, and the founders of PAX, of course, had pushed through the seatbelts legislation. And just down the road from me um, in, in Birmingham, Murray Mackay, Professor Murray Mackay, one of the founder, founders of PAX, uh, was working on uh, some, some, some amazing road safety work to make vehicles safer. And so 
you know, it was it was it was the right place to be, ironically, um, or, or coincidentally, I should say. And then I moved from there to work for Birmingham City Council, which um, had become the largest municipal local authority in the country, a million people, industry authority. The county council had been abolished by Mrs. Thatcher, and um, I was a transport policy officer. But one of the things that I uh, took on under my wing and actually <laughs> spent a lot of my probably most of my time doing was promoting cycling, cycle planning at Birmingham, which quite honestly in that council uh, was very unusual. I think my some of my colleagues in the engineers department thought I was a nuisance in that case, an idiot, what you know, something along those lines. But um, we pushed through the Ray Valley cycle route, uh, which uh, with help from Sustrans. And when I look back now at Birmingham today, I mean, it is just remarkable how the council has transformed its policy. It's gone from being motor city to a place that's pushing 20 mile an hour speed limits and um, active travel and, and clean air and a whole range of, of really, really good things. So, um, but I mean, ironically, back in the 80s, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually more excited by risk compensation ideas from the likes of Dr. John Adams at UCL, who was actively campaigning against um, mandatory seatbelt legislation. Um, so I hadn't actually come across PACS at that stage. Um, but anyway, I moved after the council, Birmingham City Council, I moved on to some consultants, and then uh, I spent um, quite a long period being self-employed and doing some really good work. Well, I, th- I thought it was good work, interesting work, work I enjoyed, with a number of uh, active travel, sustainable transport organisations like uh, CTC, now Cycling UK, Sustrans, CPRE, Transport 3000, now Campaign for Transport. And um, I also uh, did some work for the CIHT, Charter Institute of Highways and Transportation, on their, on their guidelines. I, I wrote several of their guidelines on planning for cycling, cycle audit, and walking. And um, they were, you know, they've all been superseded by much, much, much cleverer stuff now. But I think they were they were quite seminal at their time. Um, so that was very satisfying. After that, uh, or actually in parallel with that, I did a five, <laughs> supposedly a six-month part-time contract with TRL, which lasted for five years, doing various bits of research for the Department of Transport, mostly on active travel and um, road safety of various types. And I overlapped there with some great people in, in road safety, like Rob Tunbridge, and I learned about other greats like Barbara Sabi. And it was a, it was a really useful period that, uh, in retrospect, I realised just how much I kind of soaked up through the, the tea rooms there in, 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 from, from the other boffins um, at, at TRL, Transport Research Lab. And then, then I moved to the Audit Commission, where I um, went around doing best value inspections of environment services and local councils and, you know, the sort of equivalent of Ofsted. Um, and, you know, we gave them ratings and we scored them and prospects for improvement and so forth. And after five years, I was totally disillusioned with that. I decided that the inspection approach uh, was fundamentally flawed. And so I, I won't go into that, but um, I could if you want me to. <laughs> But uh, luckily, um, I saw an advert for a job at the House of Commons, the Transport Committee, and uh, I got a job as the Transport Specialist, the Committee Specialist on the Transport Committee, and was there for um, 
so I was there. I joined um, in two thousand seven, I think it was end of two thousand seven, end of the Labour government. Gordon Brown took over briefly, and um, had five years there. And during that time, I carried out the road safety inspection with Rob Gifford from PAX as the special advisor. So that's where I got to know PAX very well. So that's in a you know my career before PAX. So, I mean, obviously, there's a huge breadth of roles there from private consultancy through to working for large councils, engagement in the in the political piece. I was wondering within that sort of breadth of roles in different institutions that you've worked with, um, what you consider to be some of the, the highlights? I mean, you've already touched on that uh, transformative piece of work in Birmingham, which at the time was, you know, really quite uh a different way of, of approaching things. You touched on some of the sort of more seminal works in terms of the guidance. Yeah, it seems like you've been around at some quite interesting points and had the opportunity to be quite influential. What, what would you identify as some of the kind of key highlights uh, as you look back over, over the last few years? Well, I, I think Birmingham was uh, a very good opportunity, um, not only for establishing cycling there, but Birmingham Council, because of its size and because of some of the other excellent people there in the planning and transport departments, were looking beyond just getting some money from the government to build another road scheme. They, and, and we pushed, well, we helped introduce the forerunners of what is now the local transport planning system. Um, and I think that, that was very important, you know, bringing back, if you like, or introducing integrated transport planning at a, at a local level. Um, when I... Uh, were self-employed. Um, I suppose, apart from some of the some of the things I, I mentioned about the CIHD guidelines and stuff, I uh, helped Sustrans launch their Millennium bid for the National Cycle Network, and I took great pride sitting on a, on a panel with the great John Grimshaw and um, uh, Sir George Young, the, the Transport Secretary, bicycling baronet as he was. Um, Bill Oddy was there as well, and, uh, and other luminaries. Uh, I think at the end I didn't say anything, but I was quite happy to be there. <laughs> um, and yeah, at CRL we, we pushed out a lot of sort of quite interesting research on uh, attitudes to cycling. Active travel, I think, is, is what we now perhaps call it more, and that gave me the excuse to go around to various international velo city conferences around the world. And so we're going to Graz soon after Graz had become the first city to introduce 30 kilometers per hour. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was just sure. as, as you sort of follow that arc, one of the lines of questioning that I think I, I had for you was around, you know, sort of thinking differently about transport, because what you're pointing to is some of the work that you've, you've done over the years, which I think is starting to become mainstream in a way that it wasn't necessarily um, often at the times at which you were doing it. So, you know, as you think about some of the challenges facing transport today, um, uh, there's a huge amount that you've seen over those years that, that that feels like it becomes very relevant. So I guess, you know, how do you see us embracing the challenges of the transport system now um, in the light of some of those challenges that you, you sort of faced over the years? When I started out, predict and provide was still very much the mode. Cycling was frankly seen as a joke. Um, there was a senior statistician at the Department of Transport who 
would quietly admit that they only counted bicycles to prove how dangerous cycling was. And um, Linda Chalker called for a national cycling conference. She was then transport minister, called a national cycling conference, which was great, except that the county surveyor for Cambridgeshire stood up and said, look, if you haven't got cyclists in your area, don't encourage them. It'll just bring problems. Um, and I think we have moved a million miles from that, I'm, I'm glad to say, because that was a completely unsustainable, um, unhealthy uh, model for, you know, unsustainable from, from so many different perspectives. I mean, Buchanan pointed that out, I think, long before, but we were still on that track. Um, so active travel is now mainstream. We have what's the, you know, uh, the Prime Minister's active travel policy. I know it's I know Boris is no longer the Prime Minister, but that that was you know a big big thing I think to have a Prime Minister's name on um, the document year change. Um, and I think we are seeing transport in in context more. And if you take Wales at the moment, you know they're reviewing their major road schemes and saying do these deliver on our climate change objectives, our active travel objectives, our uh, sustainability objectives, our uh, intergenerational equality objectives, all those, all those sort of things, you know, or are they just predict and provide? Um, and um, you know, a lot of local councils are really, I think, sort of grappling with those broader con- that broader context. Um, we've seen huge uh, interest in in um, clean air uh, more recently, um, you know, triggered part perhaps by the. Um, uh, diesel bait scandal, but also other cases. So, I think you know the debate has moved on a lot. However, traffic continues to grow. Um, you know, we have not cracked it yet. So that was, I, I guess, the, the the next question I was going to ask is, you know, if we haven't cracked it yet, what do you see are some of the things that we need to do differently if we really are going to embed the kinds of behaviours that we want in an integrated transport system that works for all? Well, I mean, sadly, you know, I feel some of the answers to the, these things are not new. You know, land use and transport planning, all that sort of thing has been around a long time. And, um, you know, we have to have development in the right places at the right density, uh, you know, which can be su- sustainable from transport and energy and all sorts of perspectives. You know, we, we can't stick houses out in the middle of nowhere and expect people to, to walk and cycle to and from them. You just it just won't happen. Um, we have to get away from the prediction ride. I think we have got to bring in various forms of road pricing, congestion charging, work uh, user uh, workplace user charging, that's parking, sorry. Um, uh, you know parking charges. So I think we demand management has got to be part of it because if it's quick and cheap to drive, people will do it. And it's all very well saying it's healthy, it's good for the planet, et cetera, et cetera, to walk or cycle, catch the bus. But people choose quite reasonably, you know, what suits their lifestyle. And, uh, you know, that that's it's a big challenge, politically a big challenge. Uh, but I think we, we have to do that. And I'm, I'm worried we'll go down an alternative route, which is just to say, well, let's have electric cars. And actually, they can be even bigger than the cars they're replacing, and um, uh, that will that will address the carbon issue, but it won't address any of the other issues of health, uh, active travel, safety, um, congestion, etc. So, during your tenure at PACS, 
one of the things that you really helped to sort of drive the agenda on was safety amongst changing mobility. So I'm thinking particularly about some of the work on e-scooters, for example. Um, as the mobility landscape changes, how do we keep safety in view in that changing landscape? Because I think it's very easy to get caught up in a world where, you know, sort of plus ça change, everything is changing, and we're very excited about new mobility options. But I think what you've managed to do is, is maintain a perspective that that change needs to come with some social responsibility around it. So how do we keep that focus within our advocacy and our policy development? Well, I think that's PAC's role. You know, uh, I've always seen, you know, PAX is not an active travel group. We, we, you know, we do, we are in favour of active travel, but that is not our raison d'etre. It's not our charitable objective. So my role as executive director of PAX was to focus on transport safety. And, um, you know, to my, my mind, I would say, well, does something bring us nearer to Vision Zero uh, or does it take us further away? And so, however environmentally wonderful it is, um, we need to consider the safety aspects. Now, I fully recognise that um, life's complicated. The government has to make decisions on a, on a range of issues and they do sum up, they do weigh up some of the safety implications against other potential uh, benefits hopefully and that you know there may be a reasonable decision com compromise to be made there or a reasonable result to be made you know i mean they you know they're looking at it in all sorts of other ways around um liberalizing uh licenses for for heavy goods vehicle drivers lgd drivers and and so forth so you know we, we recognize compromises sometimes sometimes have to be made and, and and you know you can't be you can't be absolutist but you shouldn't forget about it you know and i would absolutely call on our friends in active travel sector or, 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 the, or the decarbonisation sector to embrace like because if something's not safe, it's, it, it doesn't uh, you know it's not going to last. I mean, here we are talking just after the referendum in Paris, where ninety percent of the electorate said no, we don't want these scooters in Paris, <laughs> and it looks like they're going to be banned. Um, the same three companies which are operating in London, and I'm, I'm not making any criticism of those companies. Uh, or, or London at all, uh, but it hasn't gone down well. So you can't ignore these things, from, from, I think, from either the safety perspective or from the business perspective. So, I mean, you mentioned there the Vision Zero ambition and the fact that actually there are some things that clearly mitigate against it. One of the things I was, I was thinking about, which has been a significant change over the last 15 to 20 years, is the appreciation of safe system and the importance of moving away from that sort of user-centered approach where yeah, we blame the user for the stuff that goes wrong and to think about a much more systemic response. Um, I guess as you sort of reflect on the roles that you've done and the institutions you've been involved with, yeah, what could we have done to make progress faster in that area than we perhaps have done? Because it does seem that there's still a great deal of work to do. Um, yeah, what what do you think we could do to, to really embed that vision of safety that you've just articulated more effectively than we perhaps have to date? Well, uh, PAX has tried to emphasise or, or, or explain um, and help develop the practical side of vision, of vision zero and safe system. And I do think there's been too much emphasis on the principles of safe system, which are which are important and right. 
but simply saying it's unacceptable for X number of people to die, you know, um, doesn't mean you come up, you have the solutions. And I do think it's been too much emphasis on principles and also perhaps on a sort of absolutist approach. You know, if it's not 100% safe and it's not safe system and it doesn't count. And we're not going to get from where we are now to the perfect safe system in one year, two years, even 10 years, really. So, you know, PAC's contribution has been to try and sort of demystify it a bit, um, break it up a bit, because there is this somewhat idea, idea that if you don't do everything, you're not doing it. Well, you can't do everything, not all at once. And anyway, one person's job won't embrace everything. So they have to get on with what's in front of them, which often is engineering or it's vehicles or it's, you know, education or so forth. So I think that that would be my suggestion. Um, Also, I think the terminology is not helpful, frankly. Safe system sounds terribly dull. You know, it sounds like a computer system. Vision Zero is much more appealing. And lots of councils and organisations have, have gone for that, while also embracing safe systems. So, you know, like GFL has, has done that, really. They've got a danger reduction strategy, not a road safety strategy, because road safety can seem a bit, you know, a bit boring now, a bit old hat. <laughs> but they have they have firmly, um, uh, the mayor has firmly nailed his flag to the to the um, zero target, you know, which is more than Vision Zero. So there's a few thoughts there. Yeah, when you talk about, you know, this is something that we're not going to do in the next year or two, not even in the in the next 10 years, do you think we've had an, an overly optimistic approach to our application of safe system? We haven't necessarily kind of really thought about the long-term strategic and social narrative that needs to be built if, we, if we're going to look for a transport system that is genuinely free of death and serious injury. Um, um, how do we articulate that in such a way that helps us to, to persuade people and win the argument i think you're absolutely right i mean when i say t- 10 years away i don't mean all of it's 10 years away i think some things can be done very quickly um much more quickly but not all of it uh, i do think we've got to put it into a narrative um or, or even some sound bites you know um which have much more public appeal safe system does not appeal to politicians it doesn't appeal to the media but it doesn't appeal to the public frankly you know, it is a, it is. I think for the professionals. Um, so I think around terminology um, and the whole thing about Vision Zero has taken a long time. Took me a long time to sort of think it was. A, I mean, I can remember years ago reading about it in Sweden and thinking, oh, it's rubbish. You know, <laughs> you, you know you'll never get to zero. It's, that's pie in the sky, and it's suboptimal as well because you know. And people like Richard Orsup will talk at length about you know the dangers of, of zero, and I, I I always say it's a vision, it's a direction of travel, but it's a, uh, a way of thinking. It's not an, it's not a number that has to be perfectly achieved. You know, there have been cities that have achieved it already, which is fantastic. So, um, and, and some countries are not that far away from it, frankly. But anyway, I think it's it's more about an approach um, than a number. Um, so I think we've got. To, you know, I think we've got to be really, you know, see where people are coming from, and, and and not just bash them over the head and say you're wrong. You've been getting it wrong all these years, you know. So there, I mean, there are have been attacks on the so-called traditional approach to road safety, um, which was much more victim blaming, and you know, I think that that is old-fashioned. But I think that has la- a lot of it's gone away. I think some of it is still valid. I mean, I think you know everybody has responsibility to take care on the roads, and it's not all about um, you know. The, the most dangerous vehicle taking and driver taking all the responsibility and, and the vulnerable taking none. There's a tricky, it's a tricky 
balance to find uh, as the um, highway code changes have recently shown. Um, so one of the things I, I was thinking about your career is that you will have seen transport safety through the lens of various governments of different colours in, in, in different times. And I, I was wondering whether, as you sort of looked at the wider policy piece, whether you could kind of pick out any of the hallmarks of what effective government looks like. So, you know, we talked about what the profession might be doing or what is needed in wider society. But as you've had a, a view on, you know, sort of what government has done, what does good look like in terms of effective governance of this thing? Well, in my, my time at PACT, I'm afraid, has coincided with a period where government has been much less interested in road safety per se. It hasn't been dismissed, but it, it, it's, it's a period when they've re- rejected having targets. Um, there were some reasons, perhaps around 2010, when you, you could, you know, coming out of the recession and, and, and somewhat an obsession with targets under Gordon Brown. Um, but, you know, I think uh, we're well beyond that, that now. Um, what was good? What does good look like? I think it, it's um, having an absolute commitment to, to wanting to bring down death and injury, danger on the road substantially and not saying, well, we're among the best and, uh, you know, that's sort of good enough, isn't it? You know, um, so it, I think it's having that political commitment at the top and that, I'm afraid, has been lacking. Um, I'm not blaming individual road safety ministers. I think it goes much higher than that. Um, I think having having civil servants you can work with over a period of time. Uh, the British civil service is, I'm afraid, too good at swapping people around. Um, once they become competent, they move on. Having said that, we've, I think we've been fortunate to have some people in the Department of Transport who have stayed in post perhaps longer than they might have done otherwise. So it's their personal commitment to see them through. But I think you need that. Um, there has to be sufficient investment and um, there has to be scrutiny. You know, Parliament's got to show interest in these things. Otherwise, ministers will say, well, you know, um, why, why do I need to do it? Um, uh, they've got the message in some ways, you know, uh, on active travel. They know that there is a constituency out there who might be small, but is very vocal and um, is good at stirring up media, stirring up Twitter and so on. Um, but Rosefi doesn't have that to the same extent. I guess that's something that, that you know, many people listening to this might not understand is the role that Parliament can play in terms of elevating a topic like road safety uh, up the agenda. Um, is there more that we can be doing there? What, what are some of, the, uh, some of the ways that you've observed that actually you get the policy agenda moving by engaging within the parliamentary process in order to put increased influence on government? Yeah. It's a really difficult one, and then this is one that Pax thinks about every so often, or quite quite frequently, actually. <laughs> uh, it's not easy because MPs are incredibly busy um, with a whole range of, of pressing issues, um, as, as they should be. Um, I think I mean, it is crucial to, to keep Parliament engaged, um, even if it's only a relatively small number of parliamentarians. You know, if the minister is asked PQs, if there are Westminster debates, if there are amendments tabled, that sort of thing, it it does matter. Um, I think. I mean, there are t- how do you get to parliament? How do you get to the parliamentarians? That's that's the real thing. Well, obviously, we try and do that 
through through PACs directly briefing them and um, contacting them and supporting the all party group. But in many ways, um, it's probably more effective if they're picking up issues from social media or from their constituents, because you know that's what the, that's what backbenchers are there for to represent their constituents. So if they think their constituents are worried about something, then they may listen to us as to sort of how um, those. Um, tragedies in many cases you know might be avoided in the future so uh, we're drawing to towards an end of our our discussion here uh, which has flown by but um i was wondering as you sort of look forward you know at this point as as you yourself are sort of stepping away from that leading role that you've been playing with pacts and other organizations what are some of the things that you would like to see happen next in transport safety any of the big things from a policy perspective that we really need to get a grip on now well, I think in, in this sort of narrow um, transport safety, road safety world, <clears throat> I really want to see the legislation go through for the road safety investigation branch. The government's announced it intends to. That was back in May last year under Grant Shapps. Uh, and the longer it doesn't happen, the more anxious I become. Um, I know there are reasons why it hasn't happened so far, so far just lack of legislative time. But anyway, I think we really need to nail that, that one. And I think that will be a big, big step forward. Um, we've had um, Rose Policing included in the recent strategic policing requirement. And again, I think we need to really flesh that out to make sure that it's followed through by police forces and it includes road safety, not just disruption of crime on the roads. Um, but I mean, I just, those are a couple of specifics. I mean, more broadly, I think we absolutely need to uh, have a road safety strategy, which which is sorry, transport strategy, which is based on uh, trying to rein back the car, the expansion of the car. I'm not anti-car at all. I absolutely not drive and, uh, and and recognize the importance of it. And it, you know, this is the major form of transport for people. But you know, expansion and expansion, expansion is not um, a viable way forward. And um, within that, we're going to see that road, you know, safety is an enabler for more active travel, better neighbourhoods. Um, it's, it's not some sort of nanny state, uh, you know, attack on the motorist, um, far, far from it. David, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And that brings us to the close of this episode of Think Agility. Hopefully you found today's conversation interesting and stimulating, but there is more content available for you. So. Uh, if you want to review any of the other episodes in this series, then please do look out for those. And please do make sure that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we would really appreciate it if you would give us a review. So until we're back together, please do stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you soon.